Okay, welcome to the third episode of our podcast, Why Is This Good?, brought to you by the Naples Writers Workshop in Naples, Florida. I'm Christine, and I'm here with Rob and John. Hey, guys. Hello. All right. So in this episode, we are discussing a story that I chose. Um, it's available in the New Yorker in its entirety. And um, we'll include links and everything to all these stories so you guys can read them on your own time before or after you listen to the podcast. But this is a story called The Lie by a guy whose name I can't pronounce. So I will call him T. Boyle. Um, that's definitely his last name, Boyle. Um, so I'm going to read a section for you guys here. At some point, it might have been an hour in, two hours, I don't know, I became aware of the intense, gland-clenching aroma of vanilla chai, hot, spiced, blended, the very thing I wanted, caffeine to drive a steak into the boredom. Vanilla chai, available at the coffee house down the street, but a real indulgence because of the cost. Usually I made do with the acidic black coffee and artificial creamer Radco provided on a stained cart set up against the back wall. I lifted my head to search out the aroma, and there was Jeannie, the secretary from the front office, holding a paper board venti in one hand and a platter of what turned out to be homemade cannoli in the other. What, I said, thinking Radko had sent her to tell me he wanted to see me in his office. But she didn't say anything for a long, excruciating moment, her eyes full, her face wet as a mask, and then she shoved the chai into my hand and set the tray down on the desk beside me. I'm so sorry for your loss, she said, and then I felt her hand on my shoulder and she was dipping forward in a typhoon of perfume to plant a kind of sobbing kiss just beneath my left ear. What can I say? I felt bad about the whole business, felt low and despicable, but I cracked the plastic lid and sipped the chai, and, as if I weren't even conscious of what my fingers were doing, I started in on the cannoli, one by one, till the platter was bare. I was just sucking the last of the sugar from my fingertips when Steve Bartholomew, a guy of 30 or so who worked in special effects, a guy I barely knew, came up to me and, without a word, pressed a tin of buttered cookies into my hand. Hey... I said, addressing his retreating shoulders. Thanks, man. Thanks. It means a lot. By noon, my desk was piled high with foodstuffs, sandwiches, sweets, a dry salami as long as my forearm, and at least a dozen gray jacketed sympathy cards inscribed by one coworker or another. Just before quitting time, Radko appeared, his face like an old paper bag left out in the rain. Joe Chanowski stood beside him. I glanced up at them, out of weary eyes, and in a flash of intuition, I realized how much I hated them both, how much I wanted to jump to my feet like a cornered animal and punch them out, both of them. Radko said nothing. He just stood there gazing down at me, and then, after a moment, he pressed one hand to my shoulder in Slavic commiseration, turned and walked away. Listen, man, Joel said, shifting his eyes away from mine. We all wanted to. Well, we got together, me and some of the others, and I know it isn't much, but... I saw now that he was holding a plastic grocery sack in one hand. I knew what was in the sack. I tried to wave it away, but he thrust it at me and I had no choice but to take it. Later when I got home and the baby was in her high chair smearing her face with cream of wheat and I had slipped the microwave pizza out of its box, I sat down and emptied the contents of the bag on the kitchen table. It was mainly cash, but there were maybe half a dozen checks too. I saw one for $25, another for $50. The baby made one of those expressions of baby joy, sharp and sudden, as if the impulse had seized her before she could process it. It was 5.30 and the sinking sun was pasted over the window. I sifted the bills through my hands, tens and twenties, fives, a lot of fives, and surprisingly few singles, thinking how generous my co-workers were, how good and real and giving. But I was grieving all the same, grieving beyond any measure I could ever have imagined or contained. I was in the process of counting the money, thinking I'd give it back or donate it to some charity, when I heard Clover's key in the lock and I swept it all into the bag and tucked that bag into the deep recesses under the sink where the water persistently dripped from the crusted over pipe and an old sponge smelled of mold. So I picked the story because I started paying for the New Yorker, not just for the free tote bag. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I subscribed because I thought I had like the winning caption for a, a cartoon. But anyway, now I have access to all this fiction, right? And I can read all of it. I don't have to just do the 10 free articles. So totally worth it. And um, I came across this one. And um, as soon as I started reading it and realized what this story was going to be about, because it's pretty immediate that he's going to lie about skipping work, but then he's going to lie about his baby getting sick. Um, I just kept reading and reading, even though I, I, I hated the guy um, from first blush, you know, at first it's like, oh, you can totally sympathize with learning to skip work. And then it just spirals. So I picked it because it was one of those stories that kept you reading just because you wanted to see what happened, right? Even if you didn't like the guy. And man, by the end, I hated his guts. So this little, this section though that I read, um, the section kind of talks about where I think it comes to a head for him. It's not really going to come to a head for him later where we see his right, his wife uh, confront him. It kind of comes to a head in this moment where he realizes that these people are very good people (laughs) and they've done something extremely generous and the lie has gotten so big that he's grieving not just the lie i think by the end we're meant to think that he's grieving you know having lost any kind of joy for this family this job this child that he was supposed to have reached a point where he wanted all of it so i think getting that money was kind of like oh shit it's really real now and i've really screwed up and i can't come back from this which in a way maybe is sympathetic but not at this point right yeah it's become a legal issue (laughs) yeah exactly that's what his wife comes in and says later on so yeah what'd you guys think of it thought it was a great lesson in a, a sympathetic guy who's not sympathetic. You mm-hmm. want you yeah, you you pick up that he's kind of an asshole, I don't know, second or third page. But then you want to stick with him. You want to hear the story out. And it's kind of that um Hitchcock used to do this thing where you see the villain committing the crime but you don't want him to get caught. It's yeah. just this innate thing where the hero of the story, you're sympath- he's the only one to sympathize with. The wife is sort of on the periphery. Clover's sort of not present. The baby, the, this guy could care less about his baby. He's pawning her off on a, 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 a disreputable apartment, it sounds like. <laughs> so, But he's the only one to root for, and then you root for him. So just to kind of cut to the last part of our segment here, for me, the lesson is, can, you, can I create a character who's symp- who can be sympathetic and be such... Just kind of a, uh, just a jackass, just someone who's not worth my time. But can I create a character like this who's worth the reader's time? Even if you're reading the the rest of the story just to see like when he's going to get his comeuppance, you know, which I wasn't really reading it for that way. I, I, I guess I thought the whole time that he was going to get out of it somehow, right? Except he does kind of give it away. There's, I think, like the end of that first section where he talks about finally you know, stuttering out an excuse that he didn't really plan for. He's like, ah, the baby, the baby's in the hospital. And he's like, and that's where I made like my fatal mistake, right? That's where he, he went too far right then. And he knew in hindsight, I guess that that's when it was going to really spiral. I think, I think I was reading it to find out what he was going to make of all this. Like if you're going to do this, there should be a really good reason yeah, or something excellent should come of it. And I was kind of hoping to see what that was going to be. Like, he's going to turn his life around. He's going to discover some right. secret of the universe. I don't know. And, uh, but yeah, obviously that never happened, but that's, that's what kept me going forward. I think sure. it's like, well, if you're going to, you're going to ruin your life like this, <laughs> what, what are you going to get out of it? Yeah. Or 
I guess what I really enjoyed about that first part, there was like a section where he talks about um, sitting at the diner, like getting another cup of coffee, and it was only 9.30. He's like, wow, I have the whole day ahead of me. And then that, that next paragraph, he talks about like, anytime you take the day off or you call out sick or whatever, you, you can't help but compare what you would have been doing at work at that exact moment to what you're doing now. So like there's, I think maybe four or five days he takes off in all in this story. And it goes from like this total high of just getting coffee at a diner. That's all he's doing. And to your point, like, that's all you're doing? I thought there's going to be some massive payoff to, like, take off work. So he's just enjoying the coffee, and then he just, like, goes to a movie, and then he just has a drink. But, like, by the third or fourth night, he's getting the frozen pizza instead of, like, making the whole meal. And um, he just becomes even more unlikable then. Like, he's not even taking advantage the right way of, like, the time off. There's something sneaky about that where a story says, look, you're just like me. Because I know when I take a day off, I'm thinking about, well, it's 1130 right and about now I'd be doing this if I were at work. But then this this kind of, is kind of an interesting thing where the, the story may be putting a mirror up to you saying, you have the capacity to be a piece of shit like this guy. Right. It's in you because you have the building blocks. We all lie. What's kind of the nature of lying? I think you picked a really great section because there's kind of a, there's a moment in the section Christine just read where he's sort of describing what it feels like to lie. However, he's talking about, I cracked the plastic lid and sipped the chai as if I weren't even conscious of what my fingers were doing, as if I weren't even conscious of the lie. The lie becomes like this sort of involuntary autonomous part, appendage of your body that it's just like consuming more and more just bullshit and and so it's fun to see something it's fun to see the nature of a lie just snowball and snowball and you can relate to that sort of because we've all lied before but of course this is a story it's dramatic it's fun yeah and this is a lie that um proves to be one you can't explain away right i thought he was going to stop when he said like you know the baby's sick the baby's still sick baby's still sick baby's better no he he made it worse at every turn at first he was going to suggest leukemia and then he's like Oh no, the baby's dead. And and by that point you're out of excuses, right? You can you can skip and skip and skip, but I think it was like when he finally said the baby was dead, it was almost like as the reader you probably assumed like this is it for him, right? He cannot in good faith return to this job. Maybe maybe he can tomorrow and next week, but at some point it's over for him. And then like at some point the wife is going to find out. I don't know about you guys too, but I kept thinking just by flirting with this lie that your child is sick, that something really terrible was actually going to happen to the child. Like the whole time I just felt like sick that way. I was like, what's really going to happen to this kid? And thank God the kid is spared. It's probably already happened. Here he has that idiot for a dad. Oh yeah. He's just dropping him off at the babysitter. One thing that I thought was amazing, or kind of what you were talking about with this uh, losing control of it. Yeah. Everything he's doing, he uh, he always has a different plan. Um, I'm going to say this, or I'm going to do this, and then when he gets to the moment, the lie takes over, and he does it. The, he digs a deeper hole for himself. So there's a lot of that set up setups where he says, "This is what it's going to happen," and instead something else happens. You know, the section you read with the money, he was going to not. Uh, he's going to give it away. Not the money. The um the the food. Oh, yeah. The food. And he starts eating it. He can't help it. And like what you said with, he was going to say, he says, um, leukemia. That was what I was going to tell him. Right. The baby has leukemia. And then when uh, Radko answered the phone, I couldn't help myself. The baby, I said, the baby passed. It's, <laughs> he couldn't help himself. Every time he right. says something worse than what he was planning to do. And, and as far as we can tell as a reader, like the only payoff is that he doesn't have to go into work then. What an enormous lie just to not have to to have to go into work, right? Like, I don't know. It wasn't as if he actually did something wrong and he's trying to cover. And, and the, the cover of a lie becomes bigger and bigger. He just, like, this is all brought onto himself. 
What did you guys think of the ending? So the end, he kind of says, like, the wife, you know, has had this phone call. She realizes what this jackass of a husband has been doing the past week. Asks where the money is because, you know, she's the the newbie lawyer. So that's her concern. But he just kind of, like, gets up and leaves. And there's that sentence about, like, everything was a lie and they were already dead to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was pretty powerful. It was. And I was also like, I guess this was... What was happening for him, right? Like He seems pretty miserable from the get-go in the yeah. story. He wakes up. He doesn't want to be there. His wife used to be sexy, but he's woken up to her a thousand times. Yeah. She's still sexy, but he's over it. Right, exactly. <laughs> There's this sense of kind of sleepwalking throughout the narrative that I found really interesting. Obviously, we wake up with the story. We wake up with him. But some of the um, the time jumps are really sudden and, and interestingly so. He, he wants to surf. He's surfing. The, the taste of salt is in the mouth. All within the same sentence. And then he's gone and he's back. Or it happens again where he's hungry after the movies. And then he eats and then he's gone. And he's gone to the movies. We don't find anything. So I think that speaks to the nature of two things. I think it's the nature of lying. The lying just kind of perpetuates this, I gotta go, I gotta go to go. And it just kind of drags you along. And also just sort of the nature of storytelling. When we're telling a story, we're obviously lying. And just sort of the nature of how we construct a story or a lie where it just sort of builds on its it builds on its own so i think if if we read it from the fact that this could be a story about storytelling itself and we sort of remove the fact that this guy's a, a piece of crap then i think it become a kind of an uh maybe a, a helpful instruction as far as how to compose how to compose your own lies as a storyteller you just you kind of you hand the keys over to want to the narrator you give him a set of we feel like we know the narrator pretty quickly. So we, we give him a set of, of traits and then he just kind of takes off on its own. Right. And I think that gives us kind of the sleepwalking sense. Well, that's a good way to describe it because he seems to be like sleepwalking through his life, right? Mm-hmm. Like he, he just keeps going to work or he wakes up and, and the same wife hands him the same baby and he doesn't feel any passion about any of it. Like one day is the same to the next. Even he talks about at work having to edit that same scene over and over, you know? Everything for him is just so repetitive. Um yeah, so by the end, for me, that ending was like, wow, like, this, I can't believe that's what it was building to. You know, how many stories have you read or how many actual stories have you heard of people being unhappy with everything they've they've come to to get for themselves, right? The wife, the baby, the job, and then throwing it all away. I don't think, in, he never, he doesn't go anywhere. The um, So there's this line about the middle of the thing. He said, I've been wrapped up in my grief, a grief that was all for myself for the fact that I was 26 years old and... 26 years old and going nowhere and so he's spinning this lie and it eventually is when his wife finds out he just walks out the door and says now everything's dead to me but he's still not going anywhere right (laughs) he didn't he didn't take this lie and like i said before use it to do something else Mm -mm. he just took this lie and went and saw some movies and got in trouble and then left and he's still that same guy (laughs) right i think uh like an interesting parallel then too is the brief snippet snippet that we see with Clover, his wife, who sits him down one night, one night and says that she wants to change her name. And for me, like kind of reading that was like, oh, this is out of the blue. But I mean, if you think about it, it's his wife is changing, right? She's becoming a lawyer. She wants to change her name. She maybe despite or because of having a family and, and a child, like has the freedom to reinvent herself somehow. But yet he feels stuck with these circumstances. So they they seem to be in different relationships, right? Like she's flourishing because of these circumstances and, and he's like squandering them somehow, or at least he's unhappy. And I thought that was an interesting, almost like a subplot, right? We don't even ever revisit it. She's like, I'm going to change my name to what he ends up describing as like something you clean your toilets with. She, she wants to call herself Chloris. And he's like, what? And um, yeah, so she's changing and he's almost giving up. So- he be- 
He's also an interesting narrator. Uh, I think the story does a good job of saying when you have a narrator who has a specific job, this guy's job is sort of a secondhand man to a film editor. He kind of logs a scene, logs all the dialogue. And so he kind of does that throughout his narrative. He's great at describing smells. He's really hung up on sense and sensory information. So I think that can be instructive to writers where if you have someone who has a specific job, show me that job, show me what it takes to have that, to do a good job with that particular employment and then put it into the narrative which is maybe not so um, influential in terms of the story but just in terms of making um kind of a 3d character or a 3d right. narrator yeah he's rounded out right yeah but just it's it's cool to if, if you imagine someone who's a gardener they're going to be they're going to be looking at they walk into a house they're going to be thinking what's going on it's going to be all kind of ankle level stuff so it's cool to, to think about someone who thinks from a specific, very specific viewpoint and that kind of leads into um, what we can take away from this. So like Rob said before, well, what was the first thing you said about um, sort of copying like the, the time jumps or was it? Um... Yeah, just so he, the within one sentence, he wants to go somewhere. He's there. It's already done. So he's there's three different times in one sentence, which is really unusual. I don't see that a lot. Yeah, but it, it propels the story. Um, if you think about it, it's a short story, but it covers, like we said, like maybe the span of a week overall or like four or five days. Mm-hmm. So he gets you from day to day. You're not confused. It's chronological. But he also does a good job of like kind of explaining what he does each day, right? Even like you said, Rob, we don't know what movie he saw or how he felt about the movie, but we know that he went there, what he did after, what he did before. Um, and to that point, I think we haven't really talked about the language that this guy uses, maybe because it's not really as much a part of the story as the last two that we read today. But everything is succinct. It's easy to understand. It's very clear. None of it's like unnecessary. But even in the section that I read, there are these like long sentences, right? With the long dashes and the comma, comma, comma. And all that sweeping language, I think, kind of, it felt to me like the same momentum we feel with this lie building, right? Like his day just kind of like sweeps uh, yeah. away. Momentum, like, that's that's good. Yeah. I thought the, the writing was just, it was great, but it was so good that you didn't think about it necessarily the whole time. Uh, the, he like dives into certain things that he does with a lot of detail sitting in the yeah. diner and then just elides over a lot of detail going through a list of other things he does. Just the rest of the day, it's kind of, this one thing is supposed to have meaning. This other thing kind of fades away into just a series of actions that don't really have a lot of meaning. Yeah, he's because even... they're not... They're, Dove in into? <laughs> dove in? I don't know. If you say so. Dived into? I don't know how to make Well, yeah, he's, he's like extremely thorough when he talks about like making that sauce the one day. He's like, and then I chopped the onions for this and then I did that. But then to Rob's point, he surfs and goes yeah. home in a sentence. And I guess the other thing, yeah, to Rob's point is like um, toying with the idea of like an unlikable narrator, right? Like, can I make you interested in this person or this story long enough? And I feel like I usually write characters that I feel like I identify with because I like them somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you make a character as a yeah. writer that you can stick with? It's tough. Yeah. It's like, why would you even want to write from that perspective? It's, I think one way to, might be to do it was where take a part you're not comfortable with about yourself and just try right. to explode it. What do you think we can copy? I think, um, I mean, there's obviously something to be gained by putting in the first person. The reader, reader kind of reflexively identifies with a first person narrator for whatever. I mean, there's ways that we could talk about why that happens, but, but I think another thing that happens is all the foreshadowing, you know, and uh, it's like the third page. When he he says, I made another leap, the one that would prove to be fatal. We know pretty early on that this lie is going to be the end of him. You know, it's fatal. Whether it sounds literally fatal or not, we don't know. But And that gives us a sense that we can go along for the ride because we know he's going to be paid. Like, he's going to have to suffer consequences for this. Um, And that's, you know, that helps us. 
I think. And there's a couple of places where foreshadowing really plays in a plays a role to help help us stick with the character. Because if we're just presented as like, look at all this, uh, I'm never I'm never gonna have to pay for this, and we're just built up with all this. He's just a jerk over and over and over again. I think it'd be less likely that we'd stick with them. Right. In the other stories that we discussed, uh, like the Midnight Zone and the Balloon, the Midnight Zone gives a little more of a setup, right? Where you kind of know to expect that there's a danger going on and there's a scenario in which that danger might play out. And then like the balloon, he's just kind of describing it. You don't really know where it's going. But in this story, um, yeah, there's an expectation from the beginning, right? It's a story about this lie that I told him what happened because of it. And there's something to be said for, I think, like the simplicity of that. Because sometimes I read like very abstract stories or I try to write something where the narrator, where the reader doesn't know where I'm going because I think I'm being super clever. But this had a great payoff. Um, and I knew what was happening the whole time. Yeah, it was simple that way. It's interesting to see a character who's trying to shed things from the get-go. He wants to get rid of his baby, wants to get rid of his wife, wants to get rid of his job. But then this lot, the things that he tries to do, do the, the, the device that he, or the artifice he tries to accomplish that with, this big lie, ends up just piling shit on his head. So it's just like this pathetic folly that you're just like, well, you deserve it, pal. So as far as like a little tragic comedy, I think it's a really successful story. Even though afterwards you just feel kind of gross and it's a, it's raining the whole story. Oh, I felt terrible at the end. I wasn't like, yeah, he deserved it. I was like, you screwed everyone. This poor baby that's named after a stupid thing you edited and you screwed her too. So, well, cool. We all kind of hate this guy, but we don't really hate the story. So something to be said for that. All right. Well, that is the end of episode three. Thanks for joining us.